is Lucia, and this is City People. I recently started thinking about um, what it would take to start a podcast, and the single greatest hurdle for me is believing that my opinions and what I come up with is actually important and worthwhile, even if I myself don't think I maybe am qualified, have enough education, or enough background in the subject to be an expert in it. I've learned over the course of the past couple of weeks trying to get this podcast together in time to release it on my birthday that you can't always be perfect and is there even such a thing as an expert? I really don't know the answer to that. But I guess the journey of becoming an expert is being willing to constantly learn. So that is kind of the the takeaway for um, this week's podcast, at least the creation of it, is that I need to always be willing to learn and accept the fact that I will never be an expert, at least in my own mind. But as I digress, the subject of this episode is actually something that's really important to me, and it's about public space. As an urban planner in training, we learn a lot about our city through experiencing, through learning in the classroom from our peers, literature, history, communities we work in, all of these things, hopefully for a well-rounded planner, planner, combines to help inform what we believe is the future for our city. And one of the ways we are able to engage with people and learn from each other is to be together. And although this pandemic has been really difficult in seeing people and connecting with people that you don't know, at least physically, it's taught us a lot about how important public space is. Just look at the parks that were congested, the roads that were closed for cars that turned into pedestrian spaces, these places where you can go for free, have space, meet people, do things, they became such an essential part of who we were because we didn't have any other way of connecting with people in the same kind of space. So in honor of public space, I wanted to talk about some of my favorite kinds of public space, which just so happens to be within the walls of a library. So this episode is called Libraries Are Palaces, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. When you think of palaces, what do you see? I see royalty, wealth, craftsmanship. I see places like the Palace of Versailles or Beijing Summer Palace, places that are so full of wealth that they've lasted for a very long time. And they're often places where only a few people were ever allowed in, at least during the times where they had rulers. And palaces defined a status for me that seems so unattainable that I think many people don't even dream about it or do in a sense that they're Disney characters or princesses that live in palaces. But in reality, palaces just seem way too extravagant for our lives currently. But 
What if I told you that there are places like palaces everywhere that are yours and that we pay for collectively and that serve you, me, and everyone? I know. I was a bit shocked too. Never before had I realized that there were a network of 16,000 palaces, some big, some small, but all designed with a similar intention to house knowledge and places that were intended to do that, but became so much more. Well, At least it wasn't until Eric Kleinenberg, a sociologist, came into a massive lecture hall for the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. He shared a story from his book, Palaces for the People. The argument Kleinenberg made was that there is this social infrastructure or the physical places and organizations that shape the way people interact and how they play a huge role. how a community thrives. What Kleinenberg saw is that we if we create space specifically for people to gather, share ideas, and care for each other, then we're making a better and more connected community. So how do palaces play into that? How do libraries play into that? Well, the irony is, is I was sitting in a massive, beautiful lecture hall with a ton of people that I did not know, listening to someone tell me that libraries, well, he was telling all of us, friends of the public library, how important libraries are, which got me thinking, why is Eric Kleinenberg telling friends of the public library how important public libraries are? Because you would think that we'd already know. Well, at least for me, it was a bit of an awakening. I hadn't realized just how essential the library was to everyday life, not even just my own life, but everyone around me. So that got me thinking, do a lot of people think about how important libraries are to their everyday life? I would wager not. I have to start somewhere, and that somewhere is the numbers. According to the Library Association, the American Library Association, there are 16,568 public libraries in the United States, not including academic, school, special, armed forces, or government libraries, which altogether equal a grand total of 116,867 libraries. Thousands of palaces for the people. I'm not sure about you, but I've never really wondered where libraries came from. I mean, they were just always there. But they had to have come from somewhere considering how large of a network there is. I mean, they couldn't have just appeared. 100,000 libraries and their buildings, not to mention the books, the amount of books. But if I'm here to explain how they fit into the framework of social infrastructure, I also have to include the history of the library and some other important questions I had along the way. 
in my search to understand the history of libraries more, uh, at least more thoroughly, I came across an exhibition by the Digital Public Library of America about the history of public libraries. Come to find out, first libraries were built with the help of Benjamin Franklin, who in 1731 worked as a member of a merchant group that created a collection of books. This collection was then turned into a subscription library where members paid in order to have access and to obtain more books. The first free public library didn't arrive in the U.S. until nearly 100 years later, in 1833 in New Hampshire. Another notable library was the Boston Public Library, which was founded in the 1850s. By the 1900s, there was 963 libraries, with 27% of which being non-school libraries. Now, that's a huge jump to go from 963 to over 100,000 libraries. And one of the greatest contributors to the expansion of the public library is Andrew Carnegie, whose fortune came from the steel industry and 60 million of which contributed to help fund 1,689 public libraries across the U.S. Now, I'm just summarizing the summary of the history of public libraries. There are a lot more people involved. The network is huge, but I think history can get kind of boring sometimes, especially when it gets a little redundant. And so I wanted to keep it to a minimum, but I did want to include some important social things that the libraries adapted to including an increase in immigrant communities to which libraries responded by shelving books in different languages to respond to changing populations. They also adapted to social circumstances like the encouragement of assimilation and Americanization beginning in World War I because of the Immigrant Act of 1917 banning illiterate immigrants over the age of 16 as well as most Asian immigrants, public libraries responded by incorporating programs for adult education and citizenship, something that I find quite noble. That is to say that there were social circumstances that were not positive to adapt to, including racial segregation. As more libraries began spreading throughout the U.S., many applied racial segregation laws denying services to black communities. In 1896, the Supreme Court upheld the separate but equal laws segregating public spaces, which unfortunately included libraries. One story of such segregation includes the Atlanta Library opening in 1902 for white community members while refusing black community members who made up a full third of the population. Atlanta's first library branch for African-American readers didn't open until nearly two decades later. I don't know about you, but that makes me incredibly sad to think that a four-year-old couldn't go to the library until they were 23 Though, despite the inequity in resources within libraries, they still became an essential space for black communities to gather 
and to have educational programs when they did arrive. Desegregation of libraries didn't occur until 1964. This historical inequity in libraries was recognized in 2018 by the American Library Association in a resolution that, quote, apologizes to African Americans for wrongs committed against them in segregated public libraries. Being recognized is quite different from action, but more recently, the ALA released a statement in July 2020 acknowledging the role of upholding unjust systems of racism and discrimination against Black, Indigenous, and people of color with the association and profession. The remnants of racial segregation can be seen today, as many libraries throughout the U.S. who serve primarily neighborhoods of low-income people of color go without the same resources as their richer and whiter counterparts. Not to mention that as of 2020, 83% of librarians identified as white, while 9.5% identified as black or African American, 9.9% as Hispanic or Latino, and 3.5% as Asian American or Pacific Islander. There is a long way to go in terms of supporting communities and libraries through more representative staff and librarians, to more diverse selection of books and novels that tell stories that are centering different narratives, and even addressing the inequities in actual library buildings in poor communities and communities of color is just a beginning. But the role of the public library is exactly why we need to address the inequities of their resources. The cost of not doing so is too great. A study found that libraries in poor communities of color have less open hours on average compared to their other library branches. This can impact literacy rates and young people living in these communities with underfunded libraries, which leads me to one of the biggest questions I had while writing this episode. How are libraries funded? This is a question I think a lot of people wonder, especially when we throw around things like libraries are paid by your dollars. But quite frankly, I have tried to decipher what funds libraries use to keep their doors open, and it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Among the sources, I found a book by Sandra Hirsch called Information Services Today, an Introduction, where Hirsch explains that libraries are primarily funded by tax revenue, which happens in one of two ways. Either there is a funding pot, let's just call it a pot, that is reserved only for libraries. And the other is that there is a really large money pot that funds a lot of different services, one of which... Our libraries. So either they have their own pot of money or they have to compete with other services for funding. I still don't really understand exactly what that means or where that one dollar came from in terms of tax money, but it gives me a little bit more insight as to how we fund libraries through taxes. But in addition to that, there are what Hirsch calls supplementary funding sources. 
one of the other major sources of funds. And it comes in the form of grant money. And grant money is usually given with a specific purpose. And that funds a particular program. So if you get a grant for adult education, that is the only way that you can use the funds. So oftentimes grants have a deadline and a common myth would be looking at brand new computers at the library and thinking, wow, this library probably has a lot of money. When in reality, those computers were most likely bought through grants that were designed only for computers. And if a library needs more funding to retain or hire staff, that probably wasn't covered in the grant money. But then there's also late fees, the funds of which are so small and not designed to be a money maker for libraries that some have considered doing away with late fees altogether. I mean, sometimes it feels like you're paying a lot to the library, but those funds for late fees just really don't do all that much. These funds have not kept up with the demand of libraries nationwide. According to a New York Times article, libraries need $26 billion in capital funds, with $1.1 billion in New York alone. The capital needs of libraries are highlighted in a bill introduced to the House of Representatives on March 3rd, 2020, H.R. 1581, titled Build America's Libraries Act. I'll read a summary of the bill word for word because I think it's really important. Quote, this bill establishes and provides funds through fiscal year 2024 for the Build America's Libraries Fund, from which the Institute of Museum and Library Services, IMLS, must allocate funds to states and through them need-based grants to libraries to make long-term improvements to library facilities. The IMLS must also award grants to Indian tribes and organizations that primarily serve and represent Native Hawaiians. Specifically, the bill requires each state that receives an allocation and each library that receives a grant to carry out certain activities to improve library facilities. These activities include constructing and renovating library facilities, investing in infrastructure projects to promote internet access and connectivity, improving indoor air quality, and making facilities accessible to individuals with disabilities. What happens if we cannot keep our libraries? I can't imagine a world without the Center for Public Life, but money plays a really big role in making sure their doors stay open. I have spent my Saturday evening this past week dedicated to listening to librarians talk about their profession. It's really interesting very entertaining and usually heartwarming to listen to librarians talk. And there are a lot of TED Talks by librarians, all of which have several common themes that everyone is welcome, can be themselves, and they do not have to be a consumer of anything. And that they're for you, for us, the people. 
It's a place that can offer warmth in the winter, cool in the summer, and it is a safe place to ask questions and find answers. It can be the first resource to just about anything. In many locations, libraries act as an after-school program for young people. They are a refuge for those experiencing homelessness. They can help teach second languages, and they are centers for wonder and magic for children learning to read. Libraries have adapted to allow access to the online world with computers and the internet, and they are centers for civic duty. During the last election, my library was where I submitted my ballot. It is the combination of these things that make libraries so vibrant. They are pillars of our cities. I mean, proof is in the pudding. City Lab recently published an article on dead department stores being converted to schools, offices, and you guessed it, libraries. One of these buildings is in my own backyard. Well, not quite, over a river, but the Stavros Naracho's Foundation Library is housed on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, a building built as the first department store chain in the U.S. called Const- Arnold Constable & Co. I have a hard time saying that because I've never heard of Arnold Constable & Co. If you have, um, let me know. <laughs> This occupancy of department stores with libraries, among other uses, show just how important they are to the community. I mean, if I need socks, I could list about a half dozen places within a mile of my home where I could get socks. But if you need a place to study with reliable internet and not have to pay for a coffee every other hour, I can only think of one place. The Stavros Narachos Foundation Library is also mentioned in Kleinenberg's Palaces for the People, as he makes the argument that we need to value the funding of libraries. Stavros Narachos gave New York Public Library $55 million to help create this library in the old department store, a charitable donation hardly matched by other companies. As I think back to Kleinenberg, He argues in Palaces for the People that charitable giving is unsustainable, explaining that tech giants are philanthropists solely for the benefit of their market value to bring more revenue to their companies. And he asks, how much more money do they need to accumulate before they are willing to help for the common good? And Isn't it strange that tech giants don't support one of the single greatest sources of knowledge, libraries, where many have access to the internet and have access to their services? With the exception of Microsoft, who donated $400 million for libraries to establish internet access, but it's not enough to rely on charitable giving of million and billionaires to protect the future of our libraries. Carnegie donated fortunes to build libraries, but where are the funds to make sure they continue to serve their communities? Library doors are useful when they're open. They need more money. They need more resources. They are places that people go to aspire for better.
and have their own palace. So I wanted to create this podcast in time for my birthday because it's a plea. We must save our public and open spaces, places where people can connect. We must save our libraries and revive libraries in places that are in desperate need of them. Though I may be an adult now, I will always remember the time I spent in library branches as a child, where I spent thousands of hours among books and friends, and I did so many different things. As we plan for the future, know that there are places that we have so long taken for granted that are in danger, that are underfunded and understaffed. Remember that as you go on to do great things. Remember how libraries helped so many lay the foundation for their future. Next time you go to a library, look around and see all of the ways that they're essential to our cities. And if you love cities, champion palaces for the people, places for connection, remember that what was yours when you were younger deserves to be preserved and expanded for the future. Libraries were created long before you were born and hopefully, with your help, will last long after you're gone. Neighborhoods deserve their beautiful palaces. So in this, my last question is, how can you help libraries continue to be places for connection? Well, you can start with checking the American Library Association advocacy website linked in the source material for this episode and see if your senators and representatives have signed support for library funding. Share your library stories with the hashtag FunLibraries and use your individual skills to either volunteer to teach a class, fundraise, or be an advocate for your local library. This episode was inspired by Humans of New York, a storyteller and photographer capturing people's stories in cities. I was reminded of my passion for libraries while reading posts made by the Humans of New York on Instagram recently. There were two important fundraisers that happened. One was of a literary center called Grandma's Place in Harlem, and the second, Decon, was a photographer's mission to create Ghana's first photo library. More than just the stories of the centers themselves, there were stories of people who saw the need for connection and recognized that books and public spaces were a way to do it. This mission for the greater good of their community is what inspired this episode. Stick around for a little sneak peek of the next episode. Initially, for the next podcast, I was going to use the research that I did for a different rendition of this podcast that I wanted to call Zip Code Decoded, where I talked about how geography be can become the creator of our destiny. Um, and I wanted to put that research to good use to write an episode about it, but I kind of got sidetracked this week. It's my first week as um, a master's student, crazy, and I have a lot of questions about innovation when it comes to urban planning and city planning. Next week's episode, I want to explore what innovator, the word, has become 
when it is talked about in urban planning, when it's talked about in technology and services, I want to talk about what innovation means now and what I think it should mean. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about some of the interesting plans that are coming about, like the $400 billion city in the desert proposed by Mike Lore, or the tunnels under LA proposed by Elon Musk, who both of which are considered innovators. And are their ideas really that innovative? Or could we maybe make them better? That's just a sneak peek of next week's episode, throwing some ideas out there. Um, And hopefully you'll tune in again and listen to it. So um, maybe I'll see you back next week. Thank you for listening. If you're here this far, Um, I appreciate it. I would love to hear if you have any ideas for future episodes, something related to city life, about city life. It really could be anything. And if you have time, check out our Instagram at city people podcast. Um, or you can email us talk to city people at gmail.com. Every episode source material will be up on our website, city people podcast, um, dot com. I barely finished recording this episode, so we're trying to get that website up so we have all the source material and we are ethical consumers of knowledge. But until then, um, just take my word for it. (laughs) Don't forget to share this podcast if you enjoyed it and we love the support. Thank you so much. City People Podcast is hosted and edited by Lucia Marcus Regan. Audio engineering and production by Joe Lundine. Music by El Flaco Collective. New episodes will be released every Monday. Starting maybe not next week, maybe the week after. Just keep a lookout. <laughs> See you later.